0: I am Marlon Jones, the career skills architect, and this is View from the Big Chair podcast, examining the cost to be the boss. The purpose of this podcast is to share information with students in sports administration programs and with young professionals and those who are underemployed in sports administration. We talk with guests who sit in the big chair, those persons who are directors of athletics, who are head coaches, commissioners, or directors of different areas within athletic administration. We learn from their journey, and we also learn what skill sets they look for when they are hiring for positions so that you know how to prepare so that you can get to your own big chair. Today's guest is Kenneth Ward, who is the executive director of College Bound Incorporated. I met Kenneth Ward in 1980 on the campus of the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, where we were both freshmen. And so we have seen each other grow and progress. And he is a prolific educator. He loves students and he loves imparting knowledge. So when I knew I was going to do this podcast, I knew he had to be a guest. Kenny, can you please share with our listeners your professional journey and how you got to be an executive director of a foundation?
1: Marlon, thank you so much for allowing me to join you. Um, It is an honor. I have known you since we were Seventeen, eighteen. Um, so, see the so to see the growth um, of both of our lives and, and just that trajectory um, is really affirming of the power of education. And so, when I look at my life, it's it's been about education. I started school. My mother sent me to an all-white school to be a part of the desegregation efforts. Um, and I graduated high school as valedictorian. I received a full scholarship to come to Carolina. And uh, that access at Carolina really changed my life and just my perspective. I left UNC. I moved to D.C. and ended up teaching. And it was not by accident, but I found out about an alternative certification program. And I taught for 15 years. And during the course of that time, I started working part time um, after school as a site coordinator for college bound. As a matter of fact, it's college Bound's first probably hired site coordinator running uh, their academic mentoring site at Gonzaga college high school, not for Gonzaga students, but it was just located at that building. And as time would have it, I would always say that, you know, if college bound, um, you know, could afford me, you know, I would love to work there full time. And I guess it's one of those things, be careful what you ask for, Um, many years later, they would make me the offer to come on board as executive director. I said, no, I'm good. You know, I'm good. At that point, I was a master teacher. Um, I had been in the classroom for 15 years and, uh, you know, was thinking about what does retirement look like, you know, when you leave education and my principal was pushing me into administration. And after about a semester of working as a school administrator, uh, the college Mount offer came the, my first response was no. Um, And I talked to a really great friend who is a nonprofit leader as well. And she said, you should do it. You'd be great. And I was like, really? And she's like, yeah, you'd be really great. And I talked to my principal at the time and uh, she said, you should do it. She said, you are a master teacher. You can always come back to the classroom, but you should try it. And so I made the leap um, to become an executive director and uh, it has been phenomenal. Um, I do miss the classroom greatly. Um, but it's been really amazing Um, there's been a lot of learning on the job i've taken some classes over at georgetown Um, i have done lots of seminars and workshops and i've also had a couple people who've mentored me and i've been able to learn from them and i've had some amazing board members who have also been great supporters of me and my work Um, so that's how i landed here never planned anything like this but i started college wanting to go to med school and after organic and inorganic, inorganic chemistry, I changed my major. And um, yeah, and so I'm here and I love it. I do miss the classroom, um, but this is really great work. And I've been able to do some really great things as an ED at College Bell.
0: And I think, listeners, there are two things to pick up there. One is you need to know when to pivot. Once he realized that chemistry was not for him, and medical school wasn't going to be his answer, he still had to find something to do and how to use his gifts. And he started as a mentor. So too many times, Kenny, you know, these students come out of school and they think they're going to be the president and executive director right away. And that's just not how it works.
1: I've hired a couple of them, right? And uh, I never get into the, you know, the, the verbiage of you got to pay your dues, you got to pay your dues. But I think that you do have to develop a skill set, and you have to get experience. Um, in the classroom, I saw a lot of first year teachers who really struggled, because they envied senior teachers like myself. And and they didn't understand that there was a, a price of that ticket, as James Baldwin would say, right, you put in some work, and you develop some skills, there's not a book that you can read to become an effective teacher or a nonprofit leader or an attorney or anything else. You build your skill set over the years, you find your strengths, you obviously play upon those. And then you always enhance your weaknesses. There are some things that I certainly was not good at when I started teaching. There's certainly some things that I was not good at when I started You know, as, a, as an ED. And one of the biggest things would be you know ask asking folk for money. It was very uncomfortable to ask people for money. Um, But what I found is that if you don't ask for money, um, you will not be able to run a nonprofit. Um, There's an African proverb that says, the man that will not profess his sickness cannot receive a cure. So you know, and growing up, I always heard the old black folks say, you know, a closed mouth don't get fed. And so it was one of those things of having to open up and let people know this is what I need. And what I found over the years, Marlon, is that often if you go to people and ask for money, you will get advice. But if you go to people and ask for advice, they'll be more than apt to give you advice and money. And you can't pretend that you have all the answers, because if you have all the answers, then people can't help you. Um, So at some point, you know, as smart as I think I am, I have to say, I don't know. Or there has to be a better way to do this. And when I can open myself up in that way,
0: I can get the support that I need. I like that. If you pretend to have all the answers, then people can't help you. Kenny, one thing I want to talk about is the shortage of men in the middle and high school classrooms, which then leads to a shortage in higher ed. Why do you think that there's a shortage of men going into education?
1: I think there's a disdain um, for teaching, um, in our culture. And so there's this cultural piece. I had someone say to me once that when you, when you can do, you do, and you can't do, you teach. I'm like, that's the craziest thing that I've ever heard in my life because everyone, has had teachers now your teachers may not have been as great as mr ward but you have had teachers, <laughs> right so everyone has teachers and i look at my time spent in the classroom it is some of the most rewarding and transformative years of my life and of the lives of the students that i taught so i think that there has to be different messaging there has to be different recruitment programs uh marlin uh, i know of programs like the call me mr program which targets black males that was started by this brother out of South Carolina, but the program never really see received the funding, it never really received the support that it need, that, that was needed to really make that program uh, sustainable and to really replicate it on the level that it should have been replicated. Whereas there are other programs that I will leave nameless that will send folks into some of our most challenging schools and most challenging communities to teach for two years. Um, and I'm not sure that all those folks should be in a classroom at all. Um, but I think it's sort of sexy when you can move to a place like Washington, D.C., and they pay you this teacher salary and you get to you know play school for two years. Um, I think that there needs to be focused recruitment, um, starting in middle school. Um, and exposure to the profession. I think that a lot of retired uh, professionals or retired educators have to go back into the vineyards and have to do this type of work because I think that they're the ones who have the experience, the wisdom, the expertise, and they can really let folk know just how rewarding this thing called teaching and education is. Um, But we haven't made that investment in our communities and we're seeing the results of that. I see a lot of young men in particular during junior high, high school, who stop out of school or drop out of school And one of the reasons why is that they don't see themselves. Um, I've seen a couple of Facebook posts or posts on social media where my students will tag me and they'll say, who was the first black male teacher that you had? That was eighth grade for me, for my students. So you're talking about you're a teenager when you're having your first exposure to a black male teacher. And then a lot of them are only having exposure to black male teachers in gym or music. So they're not having them in academic subjects. Um, So I think that there are a lot of things that we have to do, but we have to be serious about the need um, for black male teachers to go back into the classroom. And I think I read someplace it was less than 3%. Um, So when you're looking at those numbers, um, I think you can understand why we're having some of the issues that we have with young male students and why they act out the way that they do. And to really look on the back end of that, of the impact of us being in those spaces, I look at some of the challenges that some of my peers had um, in the classroom, and I just never had those issues. There's a different dynamic. Um, I was with a kid last night who's six years old. And one of the women in the room was trying to talk to this child. And she sort of recoiled. Um, And I maybe 15 minutes reiterated pretty much the exact same thing. And the kid came and sat down beside me and listened to every word that I said. And then we went into a conversation about fractions and how we could divide the ice cream bar up into different parts and, you know, those kinds of things and how she should leave the napkin open because it gave her greater area. um, And so she'd understand area later in geometry. So it became this teachable moment for this kid and the kids looking at me and the kid never left me though. Right. And I was telling the adults in the room that kids want to learn. Yes, they do. They have this they have this desire to learn about this world that, you know, engulfs them, that they're a part of. And it's our responsibility to make sure that we put passionate and culturally competent folk in that space. And I think that that's what's not happening.
0: Now, you mentioned skill sets. What types of skills should young professionals develop if they have a desire to go into teaching as a profession?
1: I would say, uh, the power to listen, the power to listen, um, listening can tell you so much. And, uh, you know, I, I think sometimes people can get empathy, um, you know, mixed up with sympathy and, and kids don't need sympathy. I tell folks all the time when they come in to volunteer at College Bound because they want to fix something and becomes very prescriptive. We're trying to be developmental. We're trying to find the things that kids are good at. We're trying to enhance those skills. If there are some deficits, we're certainly trying to address those deficits, but we're not trying to fix folk uh, because when you start fixing, it means that somehow you have all the answers. And, and that's not what this thing about education and mentoring or anything that uh, um, is about. Um, but I would tell kids that they need, I, I would tell young professionals, they need to listen. Um, because if you're teaching, and you have a keen ear, you can hear a lot that's not said. And you can also pick up on some of the things that kids are asking, ask those probing questions and so make sure that you give them the support that they need, whether it's abuse or, you know, trauma, but you need to listen. You also need to have the ability to, you um, Advocate um, because you have to advocate for these kids. And and I think that that goes back to the commitment. If you're committed to doing this, you're going to advocate for kids. And if you're not really committed, um, you're going to find out information about students. and It'll become, you know, dinner fodder. It'll become this conversation for you. And it will not be something that you're actually actively trying to change in a kid's life.
0: Uh, Kenny, walk our listeners through a typical day of an executive director at College Bound. You're running a nonprofit, it's just a regular day. What are some of the different things that you have to accomplish?
1: Yeah. And there's so there's this piece of like regular, right? There is no regular. There's so many different things that happened. And um, when things do happen as the ED, you have to respond. Um, There's this thing that happened called COVID. Right. Mm. And I saw the marking on the wall early on. I had done an international trip to uh, Ghana for um, a couple of weeks. And when I was leaving the country, they did a thermal thermometer check before I left. And I was like, whoa, they've never done this before. And I was listening to the international news. So I knew that this COVID wave was coming. Um, I came back into the U.S. I wasn't checked when I came back into the country. And that even heightened my uh, sensitivity about what was going on. This was March 2020. So there were no checks. And so I told a couple of friends that, you know, I think we're going to get hit hit really hard by this coronavirus. And um, we did. And so within maybe two weeks of me returning to the country, um, Marlon, I made the decision to pivot and we shut down our operations and we went to a virtual space. And I think it spared us. We were before the schools in D.C., we, we made the decision before them. And it was one of those things that I was committed to. Uh, we knew at the time that older Americans were um, being hit hard by this virus. And so I know that some of my kids are being raised by their grandparents and great grandparents. So it didn't make sense for me to bring kids into a room of uh, professionals who are traveling around the globe who would be exposed possibly to uh, COVID-19 as we were calling it at the time, um, and to take that back home to their grandparents or great grandparents. So we made the decision and the board supported me and and we've been able to uh, do some amazing things in the virtual space. It does not replace being face to face. but we, we've been we've, we've been able to do some really amazing things. And so with that, i say that's a typical day in the life of an executive director. Right, You've got to make decisions and you've got to make hard decisions sometimes and you got to stick with those decisions. Um, so whether it's payroll, hiring, partnerships, donor development, board meetings, board prep, um, supporting your staff who also are people, who have lives outside of the organization or outside of your, um, mission. um, you've got to make sure that you support all of those folks. So there's a lot of stuff that you have to do and you have to be fearless. Um, you have to face those challenges head on and be willing to do whatever is necessary to make, you know, a decision. And when you make a bad decision, you have to take responsibility. You have to take the responsibility, learn the lessons course, correct, and keep moving.
0: Now, You work a lot with volunteers, all nonprofits do. Describe for these aspiring directors the difference in managing volunteers as opposed to managing your paid staff.
1: I said earlier, one of the skills that you need is the ability to listen. You have to listen to folks and find their motivation. Again, some folks will come into your space to volunteer to fix something. And what you have to do is to let volunteers know early on, this is our mission and this is our process. So you have to let people know that. Um, So you have to be very clear about that. The big difference between uh, someone who's paid and a volunteer is that someone who's paid is more likely to show up. A volunteer, and whether that's a volunteer on your board or a volunteer mentor, they are going to let other things in life sort of take precedent, and it may not be the emergency that would make one of your staffers call out sick or take leave. Right? Um, there's might be a movie date, it might be dinner, it might be something else, and they will um, sometimes. Uh, not show up for you the way that they should show up or the way that they've committed to showing up. So I think that's the big thing to keep folks engaged. I think often because people volunteer for different reasons, Marlon, they don't really understand the mission. They may not be as passionate about it. So as the executive director at College Bound, it is a part of my job to make sure that the volunteers understand our mission. And what I know about our mission is if you get our mission, you're going to be passionate about this because you cannot not want to be a part of an organization and a mission that's sort of focused on that's solely focused on helping kids live a better life. And so once you can really wrap your mind around that and get that, you can stay engaged with us. But again, volunteers aren't paid, so they will, you know, step away from you um, without notice, not even with a moment's notice, but without notice. So you have to plan for that as well. Um, we've had events where we were anticipating a volunteer showing up to run that event or to do something and they didn't show up. Um, So I always try to have that plan BC and then red and also square because you just got to think differently about all of the things that could possibly go off track or not go according to plan. And you have to plan in advance for those
0: things. As the executive director, you report to a board of directors about how many are generally on nonprofit boards.
1: So it actually depends upon the nonprofit and their bylaws. I've seen some nonprofit boards with with as few as three members and some with over forty or fifty members. Ours, by bylaw by by our constitution or bylaws, we can have up to twenty one members. We've had as many as fifteen or sixteen. We currently have twelve.
0: And how do you manage working with all the different personalities?
1: I think one of the most important things is just transparency. I think it's the responsibility of the executive director to be transparent with the board, uh, to let them know the good, the bad, the ugly, the indifferent. If there's something happening that they need to know about, I think it's better for them to know as opposed to them being caught off guard. So I think it just takes uh, a lot of transparency and honesty you know, with the board. I think that the best relationships that I've had with the board is when we've had a director of the board who shares the passion or mirrors the passion that I have for the work that we do and supports me in that. I think that most boards understand that they aren't uh, on a board to do the day-to-day operations of a nonprofit, but they're there to provide the fiduciary oversight. And so they're to help raise money. To make sure that you're doing all of the things that you know you're supposed to be doing by your charter.
0: And how do you go about building these relationships?
1: Again, I think it's about being, you know, transparent. It's about listening. We talked about listening earlier. It's about listening to people, hearing what they want to know, um, what they're really interested in, um, and really building relationships where you are authentic or genuine with folk. You show up. Um, you are willing to be vulnerable because you know that you have this shared vision and you you know again are transparent with them and so I think that that's one of the easiest things it's like friendships. Um, you you know you're honest with your friends you show up with your friends you you know you celebrate with them and I think that's one of the most uh, important things even with the donor relationship it's about you know listening um, and also being transparent showing them you know what you're doing this good but also asking for their advice, you know, when there are challenges. So I think that all of that's important.
0: What's the one thing you wish you knew before you became the executive director?
1: Oh, wow. Um, (laughs) I think one of the things that um, I wish I had known probably was the amount of fundraising that I would have to do or development that I would have to do. I think that's probably one thing that I wish I'd known. Um, one of the things I think that would have helped as well, if I had really understood that sometimes people have good intentions, but they don't follow through. Um, and so it's incumbent upon me to make sure that I follow through with people, like people will make pledges or people will say that they're going to do something and they may or may not do it. Um, it's very important for me to not necessarily hold them accountable, but for me to follow up and to give them the opportunity to fulfill whatever pledge they have made or whatever, you know, commitment that they've made to the organization. That's very important.
0: What has been your biggest challenge and how did you overcome it?
1: I think one of the biggest challenges was um, we had someone on the board who was in charge of board recruitment and they had just not really brought on the new board members And so I was able to work with some additional board members to sort of let them know the opportunities that we were missing, um, as well as the fact that the size of the board, um, just because of term limits, they were decreasing. So we were able to work with that person, uh, because I don't want to say work around that person, but work with that person to recruit some new board members. So we got some fresh ideas on the board, some fresh blood on the board. And we're able to really grow the board and get some folk who really were committed to doing the work.
0: And what are some challenges or sacrifices that young professionals need to be aware of if they bark upon a career path on nonprofit management?
1: Well, depending upon who you're working with or, or what nonprofit, um, there are some situations where you can exert a lot of energy and resources but you don't really change the trajectory of the individual of the situation. So you can't fix everything. So I think that's important. I think that younger folks, what I've seen, they strike a much better work life balance than I like um, did when I started with this work, Marlon. So I think they get that. I think that they understand that their job or their title doesn't really define them the same way that generations before um, have done. I just had a recent staffer who left my organization to go to another organization. And as I was looking at her work history, she was with me for a year, maybe three months. She was with the organization before me, maybe a year and two months, the organization before them, maybe a year and four months. So just didn't have a track record of really staying for a long time in any given organization. And so I think that when you look at younger folk and different you know, folk in the nonprofit sector, they don't have the same long-term commitment to a particular organization. I think they're still committed to, you know, the public service space or to nonprofit space, but they're not staying necessarily at the same organization for a really long period of time.
0: Now for those listeners who may want to donate, what does college board do with its dollars?
1: So interesting enough, you just said college board, we're college bound. And that happens often. No, it's fine. I get it because College Board is the big mammoth uh, group that does the um, testing and and they partner with a couple of organizations now to do some SAT prep. Um, But we're college bound. We're a very small organization in Washington, D.C. that works with local students to make sure they complete high school and college. We are fortunate because what we can show donors, Marlon, is that we graduate 100 percent of our students from high school, 100 percent of our kids or accepted into college. And there's a local group, Many Hands, who is a giving circle of a hundred women or about a hundred women. They gave us a hundred thousand dollars about seven or eight years ago. And so we launched a virtual component and this is virtual before COVID. We had a virtual component to support our alumni in college. And so with that, we're able to track our students as they go to college and support them to college degree completion. So our college degree, our college completion rates are higher than the national average. So we can share that information with donors. We can also show them just where um, our funds are going and we can point them to GuideStar. We have a plus rating, you know, with GuideStar. So we're doing really great work. Our audits are always clean. Um, over 25% of our dollars go towards scholarships. Last year we awarded over $250,000 in scholarships to uh, outstanding students. So the the, the uh, data is there and we run a really lean organization. We do some really powerful work. And I think the best thing to do is to let donors speak with your um, recipients to, to the constituents, they talk with our students and the students can talk about the impact of College Bound and how College Bound has changed their trajectory.
0: What's your website?
1: It's www.collegebound.org, college, C-O-L-L-E-G-E, bound, B-O-U-N-D.org, collegebound.org.
0: And if there's some listeners up in the Washington, D.C. area that want to volunteer as mentors, how do they go about doing that?
1: Oh, wow, Marlon, I'm so glad you asked that, because right now we have a deficit of mentors. Um, and I think that people think that is really hard. Um, what, we talk, what we're what we talking about is a commitment of one, one night a week for two hours. So two hours once a week to help change a kid's trajectory. Um, all of our mentors are college educated because we're advising kids on going to and completing college and we need folks who've gone through that process so they can talk about personal experience and bring that to bear. But we were just having a conversation with a group of friends and we were talking about the deficits that our kids face and the music and the culture and these cultural shifts. And what I contend is that I can't fight kids from listening to Megan Thee Stallion or to Cardi B. I, I can't fight that because those are cultural things that sort of happen. Um, it's not necessarily what I listen to. But through mentoring, I can expose them to Nina Simone, Aretha Franco, Lauren Hill, Bertha um, Kid. I can expose them to other things. But when we don't mentor and we only critique, we have a generation of folks who are only listening to Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion. So they don't know about these other folk who've come before them. And I think that's why mentoring is so incredibly important. So if there are folks in the DC area, we always welcome them to fill out a college-bound application. It's on the website. Right now we're virtual. We'll be virtual for the next several months. And for folks outside of the DMV, we have a mentor bank for our students in college. We triage uh, these relationships so students can look you up based upon your college and get information about you about how to navigate your college successfully. They can also contact you based upon your major so you can give them insight about your major. And then we also look at where people are currently working so you can talk to kids about your vacation or what you're doing on the career path. So those are some ways where people who can't make the commitment to mentor weekly or aren't in the DMV to also impact the uh, trajectory of a kid's life.
0: Uh, Kenny, I want you to share this quickly. You sponsor a trip pre-COVID, and I know you're going to do it again where you take students to Ghana. Why did you start doing that? And what has been the impact of that on the students? So
1: Marlon, as you know, I went to Carolina, full scholarship. I was first generation college. Um, French was my foreign language. Uh, Carolina had a study abroad program at the University of Lomé in Togo and i wanted to participate in this program but i did not have the support to participate in that program so when i mentioned it to some family members to some different people i received no support so needless to say i never went to togo fast forward as a young adult i was able to do an exchange program in ethiopia Um, I was also able to do an exchange program through the U.S. government in Moscow and St. Petersburg, Russia. I did a Fulbright scholarship through the Japanese government in Japan. So I started doing all of this this study abroad and this travel abroad, and it changed my perspective about myself as a man, um, myself as a black man, and myself as an American. And I thought it was really, really good and powerful. So one day I walked into my principal's office and I asked her, could I take a group of students to Africa? And she looked at me and she says, when? And I hadn't thought about the when because I was ready to, to convince her of the why. And she said, when? And I said, uh, I guess at the end of the school year, she's like, OK, well, let me know what help you need. And so I walked out of the office and that's how it was born. And so I started taking students um, in my high, in my junior high school class abroad and it changed their lives. Um, the very first year we went to Senegal because, as I said, I had done French and I'd been to Senegal before. But my kids, most of them didn't speak French. They didn't speak enough so it was really hard for them to communicate. So the subsequent years, we started going to Ghana, and it's been revolutionary. And when I left the classroom and came to College Bound, I started doing a research to see that students who do study abroad in college tend to graduate on a much higher level. They're more employable. They have these different life experiences than kids who don't do study abroad. And, of course, fewer students of color do study abroad. So therefore, College Bound launched a, a study abroad program for our student ambassadors, and so for over 11 years, I've been taking students from college-bound abroad. All of those students have gone on to go to college. Several several of them have gone on to do study abroad programs when they got into college because of the experience that they had in high school. So I think it changes the trajectory for kids. Um, it also gives them this exposure, this global look of this global view, and it allows to see themselves um, outside of the parameters or the limitations of their neighborhood or their schools or their socioeconomic status, They just get to see themselves in a different light. And I just think that that is incredibly important for all youth, but especially for youth of color.
0: Now you visit your students on their college campuses. Why did you start doing that? And what has that impact made?
1: So that was a part of that virtual mentoring program for the grant that we got with the, with many hands. Um, one of the things that I know as a first generation student Is that you need some different supports to navigate college. I also know that someone showing up on college campus is a different level of accountability than someone calling you a FaceTiming or Skyping or something like that. When people show up they can feel your vibe, they can see your energy, they can sort of read you in a different way. So we visit all of our first-year students at least once on college, two or three times if necessary. Uh, We take them out to eat, we sit down, we meet their roommates, we see their campuses, we talk about classes, but we really get a read of how they're doing. And we also see what support services they are using and what support services they need. Before our students leave high school, we give them the math lab, we give them the writing lab, and we also give them mental health services on their college campuses. And again, we can't make those students use any of those uh, resources, but we provide our students with those resources When we visit them, we have those conversations about how's life, how are you doing? And I think we're developing some deeper relationships. We've sent out care packages to students, and uh, that has been incredibly helpful. This year, we opted not to send care packages, but to send gift cards. So we sent gift cards to our students um, during finals so they can just treat themselves to dinner um, or just whatever they want to use those for. And the feedback from the students has just been really amazing. And so, you know, we often hear these narratives about kids being unappreciative or kids being whatever. The kids are great. The kids are really great. And uh, I get texts, I get emails, I get just different forms of communications from them that express in their gratitude. And I think that we often do little things for folk. It makes a big difference. Uh, my mother sent me a care package once um, when I was in Chapel Hill and it made just a big difference. She didn't know but an organization on Carolina's campus that reached out to all of the first year students to sell them, you know, these care packages for students. And when she did that, like I said, it just made a huge difference um, in my life. So we're trying to replicate some of those experiences for students as well.
0: That's great. That is really great. Cause so many of the students don't have anyone to check on them during the academic year. Well, you also do college tours. How do you select the colleges that you're going to have the students visit?
1: So we try to do a myriad of schools. Of course, I went to Carolina, uh, which is a PWI. But a lot of our students have an interest in going to um, HBCUs. And a lot of our students aren't going to get into Carolina. Uh, It's an out-of-state school for students in Washington, D.C. So it's very difficult to get in. And uh, some of our students, they don't want to go to Carolina, right? They want a different experience. They want a smaller school. They want a more urban school. They want a school, you know, up north. But a lot of times they don't know what they want. So until you start doing college tours, until you get them on campuses, until they start seeing what's out there, they really don't know. And what I think differentiates a college-bound college tour is that when we do our college tours, our students, if we have students on those campuses our students on those campuses come out and they have conversations with our students. So then they can have the conversation about, well, how do you get back and forth from DC to school? Where do you get your hair done? Uh, where did you buy your books? How are you paying for school? How did College Mount prepare you for this? Um, how did your high school in DC, whether it's Bannock or McKinley or Coolidge, how do they prepare you for this college, right? So it creates those relationships um, for our students. And again, I think it demystifies College for Students. And I think one of the most important things that we can do is to demystify College for Students and let college know that it's not this place where you need to fear or this place um, that you can't succeed at. Um, So those are some of the benefits, you know, of the college tours that we do.
0: How has your role as executive director for College Bound changed you?
1: I believe to my core um, what this has anchored or what this has cemented in my soul is that you can make a difference in a kid's life. I think I've always believed it, but the work that I do at College Mount has shown me that time and time again. In the classroom, I taught, you know, a kid for a year and the kid left. You know, I run into the kid later, you know, they may be successful or they may have, you know, not been successful yet. Um, But with College Bound, I've been able to create programming that supports kids into and through college. So I get to go to college graduations. Um, I get wedding announcements. Um, I get Mm -hmm. announcements, you know, about new jobs. Um, And so I get to see that work. And there's a kid we have this year who's about to graduate from college. I've been looking at her social media posts as she posts her graduation pictures that she's uh, taking. And she has a, ca- a countdown, like a clock counting down the number of days and uh, hours to our graduation. And it's so rewarding. And I remember meeting this kid in the eighth grade. She was incredibly angry. She had lost her father at a young age. So there was some understandable frustration there Um, she had had lots of disappointments in life and she was angry and through mentoring and through some of the supports that we've been able to provide, um, she has this college bound family that shows up for her. And when I see her posting these pictures and I see her, the glow, as the kids would say, the glow up, I see the glow up. It is so incredibly rewarding. And so on one of the posts that I saw last week, I sent her a message. I said, I am so proud of you. And she responded to me, you know that you were a part of this. And so when you see that happening, it just sort of cements again into my soul that you are a part of this. And if you negate that or if you don't add value to this impact that you have on the lives of young people, then you're doing your program and you're doing yourself a disservice. So what I recognize more than anything, Marlon, is that mentoring does matter you know it sounds sort of cliche like mentoring matters no it does matter and i go back to the early example like kids get they get fed a lot of stuff in life and a lot of it is disappointment so i think through mentoring and and showing up for them going to recitals you know going to games um you know cheering them on along the way um, makes a big difference
0: you are phenomenal k ward thank you so much
1: Marlon, I am fortunate to be able to do work that is so rewarding. I think about my mom. I think about my grandparents. I think about other folk who've come before me who didn't have some of the options that I've had and they worked to provide a living or to make a living. And certainly my life you know, allows me to do that, but it also allows me to make a difference in the lives of others. And I just feel incredibly fortunate to do this work. And one of the things that I caution my students about is they're looking for, you know, vocations in life. So look at something that you really love doing. So, you know, it's not like this. Thank God it's Friday. But, you know, you're living on Sunday. Like, thank God it's Monday. You know that, you know, tomorrow's Monday, I get to go to work and do something that I really love doing. And this, you know, career path for me has provided that the classroom, college bound. It's given me an opportunity or a window to really give back in a meaningful way. So I'm really thankful.
0: Now, it's Overtime. Overtime! What book do you suggest expiring nonprofit professionals read?
1: There are actually two books that I suggest that they read. Um, One is the Happy Healthy Nonprofit which sort of takes a look at nonprofits in the space of them not being toxic, because there's a lot of toxicity that happens in the nonprofit space where people sometimes feel like they have to be martyrs for a cause. Um, So I think that that book is really good to help you keep perspective. But one of the books I think that's great for folks in this space um, is actually the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass. I think that the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass really shows the struggles that that one goes through. It shows his self-emancipation. It also shows his work, um, to keep the union together as he works to recruit soldiers to fight in the Civil War, including his sons. And then after that work, he works for women's suffrage movement. So it shows folk who work for the greater good. And I think that that's one of the most important things that you have to remember about when you're doing this type of work is that you're really working for the greater good. Sometimes it's not about you and it's a cause greater than you and a cause that will last long after you've left this plane.
0: And what's been your best day in that executive director chair?
1: There are so many great days. Um, Obviously, we work in the college access space. So when students get full scholarships to go to college, I went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. One of my students received the exact same scholarship that I received to go to Carolina many years ago. So it was a full circle moment for me. Um, There are also the moments where a donor will say, I'm gonna give you like $100,000 and they come back and they say, oh, we're gonna give you $250,000, right? Um, There's a moment where a donor has me have lunch with an advisor. Um, I'm thinking they're about to fire me because of the probing questions and how they're just asking all of this information. And I get a call later that day that the donor is going to give me a a million dollars, which is the largest gift that my organization has ever received. So there are those types of moments, but there are also those small things when students will call you or they'll send you a message on Facebook and they'll just thank you um, for the input or impact that you've had in their life. So sometimes the small things are just as important as those million dollar gifts.
0: And what's been your worst day as executive uh, director?
1: There are two uh, moments that have just been God awful. One of those was losing one of my largest donors because of something that I didn't do. That's something that someone else had done. Mm-hmm. And this was a relationship that I had cultivated over 10 years. And when the um, person who was the catalyst for us losing this person um found out about it, they pretty much their response was, well, you'll find the money from someplace else. And I was really devastated and it wasn't just about the money um, because I lost a relationship with that family that I had built over a decade and uh, they're great people. And uh, I really, really, really liked those folk and we lost them. So um, that was horrible. Um, I would have to say the other thing that sort of broke me to my core um, was when one of my students was uh, murdered. Um, about 15 minutes after leaving um, the college bound site. Um, He was on the way home. I had seen him about 90 minutes before this happened. We had texted about 15 minutes before it had happened. He had texted me and uh, he was planning on seeing a recruiter from FAMU the next day. And um, so he was just excited. And and I filmed him like that night um, talking about, you know, his aspirations and hopes. And uh, like I said, in 90 minutes later, his life was taken from him by a kid who was trying to rob him for his cell phone. My student was less than a block from his house. Um, so that has been one of the most gut-wrenching things that has ever happened to me. Um, and I still you know, um, struggle with that because he was such an amazing young man. The beauty of it is that he has a twin brother who's in his final year at FAMU now, you know, who's sort of living that dream. And what is a reminder to me of is that we can't control life. Um, What we can do is we can just work as hard work as, you know, as earnestly as we can, you know, on this journey, but we really have no control over that and we can't keep our loved ones safe. We can only prepare for the future as best as possible and hope for the best.
0: What is your go-to inspirational quote?
1: It would have to be a quote that I used on my, uh, sh- uh, we had an attendance sheet when I taught school, I taught school for 15 years and there was a quote that I would use. And the quote has been attributed to someone else now, but it, that's not the, the originator of the quote, but the quote says, everything that you touch, you change and everything that you change changes you.
0: Mm. That's good. That's good. Now, what is a motivational movie? that you suggest young professionals watch?
1: Oh, wow. Um, There's so many um, movies that I think are great. Too often, I think that the movies um, will paint folks as heroes and other folks as villains or victims. Um, So I try and stay away from some of those feel-good movies that reinforce stereotypes. Um, I think... Um, A really good movie um, for me would be um, The Great Debaters, I think. That's a great movie, right? It talks about Black excellence, um, you know, all of those kinds of things. Um, But there's so many other stories that show the resilience, I think, of Black folk in particular. And I think that when we look at a lot of the work that, you know, I do and a lot of my peers are doing, we're talking about folks who are disenfranchised or people who... Don't have the 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 same playing field um, as other folk, and so there's so many movies out there. They're like Hidden Figures. Um, there are a lot of movies out there that really tell the story about perseverance and about determination. Um, you know, so so there are so many things, but those two sort of stand out. They, they certainly stand out for me.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much uh, for being a guest.
1: Marlon, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so incredibly much.
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast. I hope that the notes you took from our guests will help you as you plan and build your career. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. View from the big chair, examining the cost to be the boss. I'm your host, Marlon Jones, and I thank you again for listening.